Jump right in uh, to the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, you can even turn there, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at a, uh, another section of this uh, intriguing book this morning. As we get started, I kind of want to do a little uh, like flashback with you. Uh, for some of you in the room, this will be a flashback to like before you existed. Uh, for others of you, this will be like, you know, maybe your high school days or your middle school days or uh, for some of you, your 40s or whatever. Um, but uh, I want you to flash back to 1994 with me for a moment, okay? Yeah, 1994, okay? Everybody, like, you're super excited about that. We're just going to look at something really quick. Um, and so, 1994, think about this for a moment. Uh, this is before blogs, because the word blog didn't even exist at that point. Uh, we did not know what bromances were. Not a word for that. We did not know what a muggle was. We uh, had no idea what a staycation was. Uh, all kind, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of words that didn't even exist in 1994. Uh, but also, this was a time that uh, these kinds of things were going on. So, The Lion King first came out in 1994. Some of you are like, oh, The Lion King, that's so good. Uh, but so did Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction. Yep, the uh, Sony PlayStation, the first one. Not like the, you know, 5S or whatever. I don't know what the numbers even are at this point, but... The first Sony PlayStation came out. Uh, Kurt Cobain was killed. Yes, I said killed in 1994. Uh, Justin Bieber was born in 94. Uh, Ace of Bass was the top band. Yeah, some of you are like in your head like, ah, I saw the sign, right? Like you're already thinking of the song. Uh, Nancy Kerrigan had her knee clubbed by Tanya Harding. In 94, uh, Tupac was shot and killed in 94, and OJ was busy driving away his Ford Bronco in 94. And I was giving the second talk I had ever given in my life. The first talk was in 10th grade. I was uh, a sophomore in high school, and it was... Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, that's a good one to start with, right? Life transformed, committed to Christ. I think the passage was chosen for me. It was a little youth group service. This is back in the day when churches were like, yeah, let's have the youth run the service for whatever reason. Um, and so, yeah, they were like, hey, would you teach on Romans 12, 1 and 2? I think I specifically had to teach on 2. I was scared to death. I had no interest in doing it. As they asked me, I was like, okay, yep. I said yes. And so um, I give my talk. I get up there. I'm like shaking. I give the talk. Hundreds of people come forward on the way to the exit uh, after the talk was over. And uh, I went, I am never doing that again. Like that's the worst thing ever. I don't like being in front of people. I'm nervous. Uh, I don't like to study. I mean, like, there's a ton of reasons why this is going nowhere. And so then four years later, 
1994, I sign up to be a part of this ministry team. And the ministry team uh, traveled throughout the summer. It was like uh, 12 weeks. We went to a camp all week long. And then on the weekends, we would run youth activities and uh, oversee like a youth group for uh, just like a weekend. And then we would drive to a church and then we would teach at the church on Sunday. And then we'd drive again. And then all next week, we were at a camp running games, speaking, leading worship, the whole thing, right? And uh, so I signed up, kind of just going, man, this sounds great. There's amazing guys that I'm going to be traveling with. It'll be a ton of fun. And uh, one of the first things they do is they go, hey, uh, so you're going to be preaching, and uh, you need to start working on your talk. And I'm like, well, are you going to give me a passage again? Like, that's kind of the way it worked the first time I did it. And they said, no, you can, like, talk on whatever. And so started like praying and reading and landed on Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I was a, a sophomore in college, like I said, and uh, I could tell you a lot about the profound nature of the prayer. I could even show you my handwritten notes from that particular talk. I would not show them to you, though, for this very reason. Uh, I have heard it said a while back that uh, if the you of 10 years ago was to think of the you today and you didn't think you were a heretic, that you're not growing, okay? Maybe you've heard that before. The you of 10 years ago doesn't think the you of today is a heretic, you're not growing. Now, I'm going to switch that and say this. If the me of 20 years ago was to give the exact same talk as the me of today... Uh, and had remained static in my growth and understanding of the gospel, or had remained uh, the same in my understanding of life in general, uh, we would be in for a treat. <laughs> I mean, we, if you think about it, growth implies change, and change is good. That we, as we grow, we come to a, a greater and deeper understanding of what the text is saying, a greater and deeper understanding of life and how the text relates to life. In fact, uh, one of the reassuring things is we see the exact same thing in Paul. That Paul, who wrote this text, is someone that early on in his ministry you see him describe faith. And as he continues to write, you see at the latter part of his ministry a nuance in it. A change in his theology, a deepening of his understanding of the implications of the gospel, a, a, a radical like reorientation toward these are the things that are most central about faith. Maybe I said this to you early on, but I want to like reinforce this differently today. And uh, so this morning, we have a chance to look at, I think, one of the most theologically rich prayers that are in all of Scripture. And my hope for this morning is that we will understand in a more full and robust way what this prayer is saying far more deeper than we would have 20 years ago if we were to give the exact same talk. Um, Because this is an exquisite prayer. And I want to start by praying and asking God to give us deep insight into it, and then we'll, uh, we'll look into the text. Let's pray. God, we uh, are eager to hear from you this morning. We believe that uh, your word speaks to us. We believe we can understand it for ourselves, and that uh, it is an opportunity for us to... uh, more fully grasp what it is you're seeking to communicate to us. 
God, may we come to know you more. May we come to understand your word more. May we be um, more uh, aware of the ways in which you're changing us and, uh, and who you're calling us to be. And uh, may we leave encouraged as to what Paul is communicating to us uh, in this text today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, Kevin said this last week. He said that uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 was all one crazy long run-on sentence. And then uh, Paul comes up for air, takes a deep breath, and then 15 through 23 is one more complete run-on sentence. Okay, so Paul's big into the run-on sentences. And uh, this whole section, we're going to look at it all at once because it is one sentence. And uh, if you would, just read along with me. Uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, it'll also be on the screen. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the prayer for this morning. Now, the big question when we look at the prayer is, what exactly is Paul praying for? It is so verbose, uh, there's so much material that uh, you kind of have to like weed through some of the language to get at the very core of what he's saying. What is he really praying about? What is the thing that matters most? And Paul starts out and he says this, for this reason. Okay, So he's saying that everything I've just talked about in the book so far, everything that I've communicated, uh, so grace and peace that we looked at a few weeks ago, this understanding that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is involved in your life in really uh, radical and deep ways, Uh, talks about the implications of that. So he says, for this reason, all the stuff we talked about, because I've heard of your faith and your love toward all the saints, I give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. So basically what he's saying there is, I'm so thankful for each of you. I pray for you often. I think of you often. I think of your faith and of your love. So this is kind of like an introduction for the prayer. This is why I'm praying it. And I want you to know I'm praying for you all of the time. I love you deeply. This is the big idea. And then he gets into what he's actually asking for. And the big ask is this. That God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the big ask. That what Paul at the very core of this teaching, what he wants to pray for is this. That you would know God. That you would know God. And the knowledge here is not a cognitive knowledge. Not that you would go, oh, like I mentally assent to the idea that there's a God. Or I uh, mentally understand that he is these things. Or according to my like um, 
systematic theology, I can tell you these uh, immutable characteristics of God and, and all of those kinds of things. It's not a cognitive at all. It's really an experiential or a perceptive knowledge of God. To like perceive who he is. To, to know someone to the point that you like truly know them. You can see the difference, right? It's really a vast difference. That uh, It's to know that you know that you know God, right? In this experiential and perceptive way. There's this um, music singer. Her name is Kate Nash. And uh, she describes in one of her songs this idea of wanting to be known at a level that's just like far deeper than by name, right? And so she says this uh, in the song about a relationship. I wish I was your favorite girl. I wish that I, you thought that I was the reason you were in the world. I wish that my smile was your favorite kind of smile. I wish that the way you dressed was your favorite kind of style. She goes on to say, I wish you couldn't figure me out, but you would always want to know what I was about. Like you were trying to figure me out deeply. And then she goes on to say, basically, I wish that you loved me. I wish that you needed me. I wish when you knew, you knew that when I said two sugars, actually, I meant three. And I love that line. I love that line. It's, the, it's this idea that, like, when, like, how would you like your coffee? And they describe, and you're like, well, would you throw in two sugars? And the person knows you so well, they're like, actually, she meant three. Like, there's this deep awareness of the person that goes beyond just knowing their name. Like to perceptively know. And all of us, I think, want to be known at that level. We want to be known not at just like, hey, you know my name, maybe you know a few facts about me, but that at the very core, you know who I am. And that's what Paul is praying for, that we would have this wisdom and this revelation to know God that way. To know him so perceptively that we become deep friends. To be so experientially uh, knowledgeable of God that you walk with him and talk with him and experience him in beautiful, beautiful ways. And a couple of weeks ago, I told you this little game that I play with the interns. Uh, if you really knew me, you would know, right? And I said, if you really knew me, you would know layer one, that I like soccer, layer two, that uh, I secretly love 90s rap and R&B. And, uh, and that got actually a lot more traction than the idea that even that you're adopted by God. But that's okay. I understand. Um, and so all week long, people are like, oh, like, what songs? Like, what are, what are your... I'm like, maybe we missed the point there, but it's okay. Um, and then I didn't tell you the third one I shared that night. And it's where you go like a layer deeper. And what I shared that particular night was that you would really know me if you knew that one of my greatest fears is that when I get to be side by side with God, with Jesus, that I would find out that he and I have very little to talk about. Like that would be one of my deep fears. Like a deep fear that um, he and I will have done stuff together, uh, that maybe I tried to accomplish a lot of things for him, that I tried to live my life a particular way, uh, but then when it all comes down to the end of the day, we're in the kingdom and we're doing work together and then it's time to kick up our heels and drink some iced tea, that I would sit down and it would feel like an awkward first date. 
kind of that you're there and you're like, hey, you don't know what to talk about. Uh, do you start or do I start or how does this thing go? And it feels, you know, versus sitting down, kicking up our heels, laughing. Like, you remember that time? And, uh, and joking about things and just feeling so at ease with one another that we could sit there in silence and not say anything because we know what each other's thinking. And so what Paul is really praying about is that, that you would so perceptively know and experience God in a way that you're at ease with him. That you could sit there and carry on hours of conversation and just enjoy one another. And he's saying, I, I pray that you would know that you know that you know God in the very core of you. That's his deepest prayer. And then he says this, and that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So, Really, clearly, that's figurative, right? But the idea behind it is this, that you would have this unique spiritual vision. That the very uh, inner being in your life would, at the very core of you, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, that you would be like so opened up. That, that God would be able to, uh, in your inner being, place these ideas because your eye, the eyes of your heart had been enlightened, that like this energy, this like vision got poured into the very core of you so that you understood certain things that you never understood before, and he lists three of them. And these I would call desires. So he says, I want you to know God, and I want the very inner being of your heart enlightened in such a way that you would understand these three desires. Number one, the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Now, in this particular first desire, I, I think there's a couple ideas that often get uh, misunderstood, and so I want to try to point them out. The first one is the understanding of hope. I think we have come to misunderstand, at least in this text, what it's communicating about the idea of hope. And uh, to, to get at it, I want to give you a quick illustration. A couple weekends ago, I had uh, this opportunity to check something off my bucket list that has been on it for a long time that I thought, man, this would be so cool, uh, and that is to go ice climbing. So a few weekends ago, I went ice climbing, and I had always seen like these videos of people scaling these ice waterfalls and having crampons and ice axes and climbing up uh, like the sheer face of like a waterfall, and I've always thought, that is amazing, like that is so cool. Uh, I kind of get jealous. I'm like, that would, be, that would be like a dream. And so I added it to my bucket list. But there were like a couple major hurdles to that idea. Number one was uh, I had no idea how to do it or any equipment in which to do it. And so that was solved by a guy in our community that has uh, ice climbed for years and uh, is really, really great at it. And so I tapped him on the shoulder and said, could I and some friends, could we do this and would you lead it? And uh, he jumped at the chance, and so he did. And so I solved that kind of dilemma. The second major hurdle for me was that I'm, like, deathly afraid of heights, right? <laughs> so, it, it, you know, there, there's certain things that, you know, you go, well, that's kind of important. You know, that, that would be a, a real significant part. Now, here's what was shocking. Uh, that, like, when I was in the moment, when I was, like, climbing, there were, um, I didn't fear that at all. 
It was like, you're just so into the action, the movement, making sure the pick landed where it was solid and, and climbing your way up that uh, it didn't matter if I was 100 feet off the ground. It felt like it felt great. There was maybe once or twice where I was like, oh, you know, you have to breathe a little deeper, but then you just kind of push on and you're like, okay, well, this is good. This is good. Um, however, the last climb of the weekend was this waterfall that I realized was a little bit beyond my scope of experience. And uh, so I had determined early on that I was going to go about 30 feet up, and then I would come back down. It was a, it was a great little plan. Uh, but that if I was at 30 feet and I still felt good, I would keep going, and we'd just see where this thing would take us. That was kind of my idea. But again, I had no aspirations to get to 100 feet and up. It was kind of just like, that'll be it. This is the last one I was tired. So uh, Kevin volunteered to belay me. We all locked in. We... Um, he had me, gave me the commands, I gave him the commands, and then I started up uh, this ice wall. And uh, first 30 feet, smooth, going great, rhythm was good, uh, kept going. I was at the place where like, oh, I could come down or I could just keep pushing on, I pushed on. I went for another 20, 30 feet until I got to this place where I felt fairly uncomfortable. Um, I... It was a little beyond my ability to kind of get up and around this little kind of section that had come out as it froze. And then on my right was this like sheer rock face right here. So I couldn't go any further this way. My ability to like side skirt everything and go to the left and then climb was uh, not good either. And so I was very content to just stay there for a moment. And then in that moment, that whole first hurdle kind of thing came up, where I was like, I am literally 60 feet off the ground, and I can't even see Kevin. Because the way that waterfall went and the way that I climbed, he was off to the side enough that he and I couldn't see each other. And so I couldn't just look down and say, hey, Kev, we're all good. Let's, let's, um, Let's do this, right? And then I would come back down. And so there was that like moment where in my gut I'm like I'm way higher than I want to be and I'm feeling way more uncomfortable than I desire. And uh, now you need to know this. Metaphorically speaking, I have placed my life in Kevin's hands numerous times over the last seven years. I have the deepest respect and admiration for his wisdom, his loyalty, and so much more. But this was no longer a metaphorical moment. This was... This was what felt like a moment of life and death, sheer panic that I was feeling. And it required that I absolutely trusted or that I had a profound hope in his ability to to let me down safely. And so I uh, did what I was supposed to do and I yelled down, uh, I said, you got me, Kevin. And uh, Kevin yelled, yes, I got you. So... Pull one ice axe out, hold on to it. Crampons are still in, other ice axes out. Pull out the second one. Peed my pants just a little bit at that moment. It was like, okay. Grabbed onto the rope, you know, and I know that the next step is to then just go, okay, and like commit my weight to Kevin. And uh, so Kevin yells up, uh, lowering, are you lowering? Like, because I'm supposed to give him the command that I want to be lowered. And at that moment, I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to stay 
right where I was. It's all that I had in my mind was just like, if I don't do anything, I'll be okay right now. And I may even consider putting the tools back in. I was like, and so Kevin's like, lowering? And I was like, you got me? (laughs) And he's like, yes, I got you. Lowering? I'm like, you got me? (laughs) I think we like three or four times of like, are you sure you got me? Are you sure you got me? Are you sure you got me? Until finally I was like, okay, lowering. And then I sat back into it and my heart just, you know, that moment where you're like, this is freaking me out. And then obviously I'm here. He lowered me. It was all good. That's what I think we think of when we say hope. Where I'm like, okay, I hope Kevin has me. Like there's this uncertainty. There's this like, man, if everything goes right, if the rope still holds and he does his part. And like, man, I hope he has me. That is not at all what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that it is an absolute certainty. It is with total assurance. It is take it to the bank, don't sweat it, don't even think about it. You are absolutely called by God. So he says, the hope to which you were called. Hope, read it, certainty. That Paul is saying, I hope you're... Your inner being would be opened up so much that you would understand with absolute certainty that you've been called. And called is really this idea that it involves everything that God has done, is doing, and will do for your salvation. Everything. So Paul is simply saying that your calling involves that you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings, that you've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you've been redeemed by his blood, that you've been adopted as sons and daughters, that you've been sealed in him with the spirit, that you have a certainty of his returning, and that everything that comes to you from Christ will be yours in Christ. So it's all that stuff he's just talked about, and then all the stuff that he talks about in the rest of the book of Ephesians, that's what he's saying, that you would understand with absolute certainty all that is true of your place in God. That's the hope to which you are called. Paul wants you to get that. Then he goes on to say the second desire, the riches of his inheritance. The riches of his inheritance. Now, again, a lot of times when I think we think about inheritance, we instantly uh, think about this idea that, uh, okay, we're going to inherit heaven. We're going to inherit riches. We're going to get the kingdom of God. We're going to have a role in that. Uh, We are the heir of all things as adopted sons and daughters. So whatever is like God's, I get it. Whatever is God's, I get to like add it to my, you know, my will. I get to include it and go, wow, I get to capture all that. It's amazing, right? But it doesn't say the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, right? It says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, which means this. We are his inheritance. It's us. We. So, for example, in Deuteronomy, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. And this has been extended to us in the church, in the New Testament, that we have been engrafted into the family of God and that we are part of that inheritance. Uh, He says in 1 Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that he's claiming you. You see this over and over in the scriptures where he says that you've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You're mine. I've redeemed you. I've chosen you. 
I've purchased you. You're my inheritance. And it's fascinating to think that God is calling us or considers us his inheritance. Now, this brings up a contradiction for some because in their minds they would say that what God is saying in this text is not that. It's saying something else because God doesn't need an inheritance. He already owns it all. God doesn't need anything to make himself more complete, to make himself happy, to, uh, to satisfy any desires he has because he doesn't need any of that. And yet that's the amazing thing, that even though he needs nothing externally, and yet he considers us to be a rich and glorious inheritance. He considers himself better off because of us. That's shocking. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling to think that the God of the universe, the God that breathed everything into existence billions of years ago, the God that created everything and, and loves us so deeply, is a God that says he's better off and richer with us as his inheritance. That he gets to redeem us. I mean, that's amazing that he would consider himself better off with you and with me. Which takes us to the third, which is the great power for us who believe. So I hope, or certainty in the calling, that you would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance and the saints that you are loved so deeply that he delights that you are the inheritance. And that you would receive this great power for us who believe. And that is this immeasurable greatness, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And what Paul is wanting us to get is that uh, what is available to us, not just available, what already is within you, is this incredible, incredible power. A power that he equates as being equal to the power that not only raised Christ from the dead, but also seated him in the high places with all rule and authority same power, already in you, already at work in you, the power to say no to certain things and yes to others, the power to resist sin, the power to effect change. Basically, he's saying, listen, church, you are far more capable than you would ever imagine that you are through Christ. That at moments when you feel overwhelmed, moments when you feel like you can't go further, moments when when you're just kind of like, ah, I'm going to toss in the towel, it's in those moments that the power is available. Can you lean into it? And it's the same power that rose Christ from the dead. And it's at our disposal. And so Paul kind of wraps up his prayer with that idea. And this is the prayer. If we're to boil it down to the most simplest version, it's this, that Paul is saying, I pray that you would know God. And I pray that your heart would be so enlightened that you would be able to grasp that there is the hope to which you've been called, the certainty that everything that is in Christ is yours, that you are so deeply loved that God's very own inheritance is you and he considers himself better off with you. And that you would understand the immeasurable under like beyond measure power that is available to you and is in you so that you might live life with great power. That's his prayer. 